I'm very excited to be a part of this community. Uh, my name is Darrell. I co-pastor with Josh here. I kind of commute in from Columbus, so I'm not around the community as much. I wish I was more, um, but at times I am. It's just such an awesome blessing. So this morning, we're going to continue on with the names of God, uh, some of the names of God that we find in the Old Testament, and we are actually going to do part two on El-Rahi this morning, the God who sees me. So let's pray and ask God to use this this morning in our lives. Thank you, Lord, that you are present with us here today. Father, we ask that you would speak through your word. I know that my words are just mere words, God, but your word holds living power. It changes lives. It speaks deeply into our hearts. I pray that you would be present here this morning. You'd speak to us. Your word uh, would just come alive, Lord. We thank you for your ever-abiding presence in us, and uh, we commit this time to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to read through, if you weren't here last year, we're going to, um, last year, last week, we're going to uh, read through the whole story again, and um, just so we can set it up, and, and then we'll take a different angle than we did last week. So let's start in verse 1 in Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had not been able to bear children for him. We talked last week about how there is so much packed into that one little verse, so much emotion uh, there's so much shame not being able to bear a child in, the, in ancient culture. I think there still is today, right? In many cultures, it's, it's, there's uh, still just a, a lot of shame and, and what's going on, have I done something wrong, and all those kind of things. Uh, magnify that like a hundredfold uh, at this time um, that we're looking at here. But she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So Sarah said to Abram, The Lord has prevented me from having children. Go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children through her. And this was actually a part of the marriage contract back then, that if you were not able to bear descendants, which was so vital and important, that the wife would, would um, make available a surrogate that would then try to bear descendants for her husband. And so Abram agreed with Sarah's proposal. So Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and gave her to Abram as a wife. And this happened about 10 years after they had settled in the land of Canaan after the promise. So they have gone, uh, God had said, I'm going to give you a child, but it had been 10 years. So they're kind of falling back on the cultural norm of the day. Well, maybe God needs some help here. So Abram had sexual relations with Hagar, and she became pregnant. But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her mistress Sarah with contempt. I am more blessed than you, right? I am superior to you because I've been able to have a child, and you're not. The gods favor me, or God or the gods favor me over you. Then Sarah said to Abram, this is all your fault. I put my servant into your arms, but now that she's pregnant, she treats me with contempt. And most likely, what Sarah is saying there is not so much, hey, you shouldn't have done this at all, but you're, you're, most likely what was happening there is so wrapped up with his, his son, right? Finally, I have a descendant, and, uh, and, and Hagar was kind of acting the part of probably a wife, right? And, and uh, so Sarah is upset that he is not keeping her in her place, like her rightful status um, uh, in the relationship there. So the Lord will show who's wrong, you or me. 
Um, da, da, da. So Abraham replied, look, she is your servant, so deal with her as you see fit. Then Sarah treated Hagar so harshly that she finally ran away. And the angel of the Lord found Hagar beside a spring of water in the wilderness along the road to Shur. The angel said to her, Hagar, Sarah's servant, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah, she replied. Sarah must have treated her very harshly. For her to run away into the wilderness, she's gone about a week, about 70 miles into the wilderness to get away from Sarah. So now she's dealing with wild animals, marauders, you know, what, all kinds of uh, uh, perils waiting out there. But the treatment she was getting from Sarah pushed her to that. It was so difficult for her. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her authority. Then he added, I will give you more descendants than you can count. And the angel also said, you are now pregnant, and, I will give, and you will give birth to a son. You are to name him Ishmael, which means God hears. For the Lord, the, the Lord has heard your cry of distress. This son of yours will be a wild man, as untamed as a wild donkey. He will raise his fist against everyone, and everyone will be against him. Yes, he will live in open hostility against all his relatives. We talked last week about, wow, okay, this is a blessing, I'm, you know, I'm going to have a son and many descendants, but kind of a curse too, right? He's going to be a wild man, and, and it sounds like all this conflict. But then thereafter, Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord who had spoken to her. She said, you are the God who sees me, El-Rahi. You are the God who sees me. And then, and then she also then said, have I truly seen the one who sees me? Like she's so excited that, wow, God has appeared to me. He has spoken to me. He sees me. And she gets obviously very excited about that. Who, who wouldn't, right? So that well was named Bir Laha Rahi, which means well of the living one who sees me. And it can still be found between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar gave Abram a son, and Abram named him Ishmael. He was 86, year old, 86 years old when Ishmael was born. So I want to go back to the two questions that the angel asks. Where have you come from, and where are you going? And it's not because the angel doesn't know, right? Like, hey, could you please inform me what's going on here so I know what to say next, right? He is getting her to think about her situation. What's going on here? Where have you come from? And where are you going? You're running away to what? Is this going to end well? Think about your situations. Return, you know, do you want to do this on your own or with me, with some help? Return and submit is what the angel says to her. I mean, that's better than perishing in the wilderness, right? Or having, you know, being uh, taken captive by someone else where that situation could maybe be way worse than what she was experiencing with Abram and Sarah. Or maybe she actually makes it back to Egypt and to all the false gods that they had and, and maybe just be lost forever. So the angel says, look, I have a plan for you in all of this. I know it's hard, but I have a plan. I want you to return and submit. I will give you more descendants than you can count, but for that to happen, you can't run away. You must return and submit to Sarah. And that's our first response in difficulties, right? In hardships in life. We want out, right? We want to run away. We want to get rid of the difficulty that we are facing in life. It just, I mean, why wouldn't we, right? It just makes, it's just common sense. 
that, wow, this is really hard. I just want it over, and I just want out. And that's what Sarah did. She just ran away. And that's a response of humanity to difficulty and hardship. We want life to be secure and ordered, right? No trials. We want comfort. We don't want all this hardship going on in our lives. And that's what we work so hard to obtain for ourselves. Maybe It's probably one reason we're in college, right? You want to get a good job. You want to be able to afford things, have fun in life, nice house, and all that. We want comfort, security, ease. We want to avoid trials and difficulty and hardships. But in the back of our mind, we know that's not possible, right? We know on this earth that's impossible. It can all be taken away in just a second, right? We live in a, we live in a fallen, cursed world, the Bible tells us, right? And, and conflict, trouble, difficulty, sickness, death, they're all inevitable. And it could hit us at any moment at any time. Look at John 16, verse 33. This is Jesus, intimate time with his disciples right before he's going to the cross. I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Isn't that awesome? Two great promises, right? In me, I've said all these things so you can have peace in me. And take heart because I have overcome the world. Two great promises to hold on to. Sometimes we miss that middle sentence there. We don't like that one as much. But that's just as much of a promise, right? I'm going to tell you what the truth of your life is going to be like on this earth. You're going to have many trials and many sorrows. That's just what makes up life. And there's, there's, I, I think that's one promise from the Lord, you know, that maybe we should talk about a little more. You know, when Jesus, Jesus didn't come and say, I'm going to make life all nice and easy for you, it says, in your life, you're going to have many trials and sorrows. And then what he's saying here, too, and especially as you follow me, you may have even more trials and sorrows. Many people have. Many Christians are persecuted all around the world. Fortunately, we're not in our country yet, but that may be coming. There's many people in government that think, Christianity has got to go, you know, like this is keeping us from moving forward and making progress. Some would even say that, you know, you're kind of, you're, you're like something wrong, like you're insane if you believe there's a God that actually communicates and wants a relationship with us. So hopefully it won't come in our lifetime, but you, you never know. But just a casual read in the Bible reveals that suffering, pain, hardship, they're not only inevitable, but also seemingly essential in God working in our lives in growing us up and helping us to become more like Christ and growing us in our character. Like without this, we're going to be deficient in some way. The Bible, you know, gives a very strong picture of that. So it's absolutely essential for our growth and our development. Look at Psalm 119, verse 67 and 71. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. The struggle we want to be rid of is often the struggle that we really need in our lives. So Hagar is told to return to her Sarah wilderness, her Sarah trial and difficulty to embrace, go back 
And she's told, really, in effect, to embrace her difficulty. Don't run away, but embrace. And this is a reoccurring theme through Scripture, too, where God tells us to welcome trials and difficulty. Why? Because it gives you perseverance. It develops your character. It will help you become more the person that I want to help you become, that, that God is trying to get us to. And embracing isn't passive, right? It's not just like, okay, whatever. You know, embracing is an active thing, right? When you embrace someone, you're like squeezing them, embracing them. And so when trials and difficulties come in, the Bible really tells us to do that. Consider it all joy, it says in James. We'll look at this verse a little bit later. But consider it joy. Embrace it. So embracing isn't passive. It's not resigning ourselves to our fate like, okay, this is horrible. I guess I just got to take it because, you know, Daryl said so, and I, I kind of see it in the Bible too, so I'll just sit here and just gut it out. That's not embracing at all. It's seeking God passionately in our trial, in that pain. And yes, we can pray. Pray for deliverance. Pray that it would change. Try you know, work through it if we can. Again, embracing doesn't mean, well, this is really bad. I hope it gets worse, you know, kind of thing. And no, try to work through it, all those kind of things. But it's also going to God with it. And we take it to him. What are you trying to teach me, God? What are you trying to show me through this? What's going on in my life? And especially if it's a reoccurring thing, why is this happening again? God, what are you trying to show me and teach me? Embracing is praying that God will enter into it to be present, to give us hope and strength and wisdom and direction in the midst of our pain. Embracing is praising him and reaffirming our faith in him no matter how difficult it is, asking for his grace to be faithful to him in the midst of our trials. Embracing is focusing on Christ with me. Embracing is focusing on Christ with me in my difficult circumstance versus me in a different circumstance, right? I'm here, Lord. Would you enter into this with me? I need your help. I need your strength. I feel overwhelmed by this. Would you come in and help me? Right? Big difference between that and saying, I just want out. I just want to get out of this. I don't care what it takes. I'm going to do it. I'm going to run. I'm going to make this different. It's a big difference between the two. Embracing is knowing that God sees you in it. El Rahi. He knows what you're going through. Yahweh Rahi is another Old Testament name for God, which means the Lord is my shepherd. So we see that in Psalm 23, right? And a good shepherd knows the condition of the sheep, right? Sheep are dead without a shepherd. I don't know if you know that, but sheep are like the dumb. We've got any agriculture people in here? Anyone raise sheep over there? Like, correct me if I'm wrong, but sheep are like the dumbest animals on the planet. They need a shepherd. They will just literally graze and go over a cliff, you know? They just be eaten and fall over a cliff because they didn't notice they get lost. They can't be found. They don't recognize danger. You can go on and on about sheep. We're sheep, you know, and, but fortunately we have a good shepherd, a great shepherd that's aware of everything that's going on in our lives. So embracing and saying, God, you see me, and I'm not going to just do whatever it takes to get out from this, but I want to bring this before you, and I want you to show me. Is there something you want to show 
me through this? What are you doing in my life? And God, I need your strength and your perseverance and all those things. When I was just five years old in the Lord and only having four years of involvement in a church, an H2O church, when I was a student at Ohio State University, I went out on my first church plant. And what we did as a movement, which we would never do again, is we planted on 50 college campuses. A hundred guys went two by two to 50 different college campuses. I went down to the University of Kentucky. I spent three years down there. I was depressed at least for a year and a half. We had really high expectations. I had high expectations. None of it was being met. We had no clue what we were doing. I mean, I was, the first year and a half or so, I was very depressed. When I later, years later, I, I'd read like the 12 signs of depression. I'm like, wow, I had all 14 of those, you know, a couple extra. But I had a little, if you've ever been down there, Henry Clay Mansion, my apartment was not too far from there. And I would walk through the neighborhood and go to uh, the Henry Clay Mansion, probably about five, 10 acres, whatever it was there. But there was a little garden. And I would go and uh, meet with God in that garden. And literally for like a year or so, that was the only time I was encouraged. In fact, I'd be walking there. It was like this dark cloud was over me. I was in a funk. I just couldn't shake. I was discouraged. I was depressed. But as soon as I'd walk into that garden, it's like the clouds lifted and God met me. And just I was, I was so encouraged when I was in there. I felt so strong. I'm praying. I'm like, God, this is awesome and you're here. And it's just his presence was so real. And for months, when I would leave, as soon as I'd walk out of that garden, my legs would start getting heavy, and the black clouds would start coming over again. And by the time I made it to the street, my legs felt like, you know, they each weighed like, like 200 pounds and just like, you know, walking in water. And oftentimes, I'd like, this is not worth it. And I would turn around and go right back into that garden, and God met me. And I think he was teaching me and showing me, look, you need me. Like, even if this was going great, you still need me in life. Do you see how a very real presence I am and can be in your life? Do you see how just being with me is your joy and is your peace and is your contentment, right, and your sanity? <laughs> just being with him. And fortunately, I carried that through into after three years. I didn't run away. I wanted to embrace this. But after three years, I went up to Bowling Green, Ohio, to help replant the church there. And uh, I met my wife there. Two years later, we were married. Um, five years into our marriage, things were going awesome. The church had really grown. It was strong. We were seeing close to 35 to 40 students per year come to know Christ and get involved in the church. And it was strong. I can just remember, like, we had a great team. I can remember... Mostly we laughed a lot, and we were good friends. Things couldn't have been better. I had two young daughters. In fact, I think I got a picture of them here. This was right at that time. We got a picture of uh, the, cute, the cutest two little girls you ever want to see in your lives. It's Nicole, the bigger one, and then Alyssa. We're going to ship them off to Grandma and Grandpa's or something. I don't know. But um, life was really good. I was really enjoying life. I thought, God, this is so awesome. What a blessing. Thank you. I learned all the lessons I needed to in Kentucky. And now, look, this is great. Life's going to be so good. 
then going into our eighth year of ministry there, our fifth year of marriage, we, uh, we were right at this time, we were uh, pregnant with our third. Um, and they said, we want you to go do this higher level ultrasound thing. So we went and we did that. And the prognosis was our son was going to have spina bifida. Um, so all I remember is hearing words like paralyzed, brain damage, you know, those kind of things. To make it worse, our next door neighbors in our apartment, uh, the Moors, their son Ricky had spina bifida. He was eight years old at the time. He had about the mentality of a two-year-old. He couldn't walk. He would roll around on the floor. He had no control of his bowsers. Blah. That was our picture. This is us. So right away it hit us. We're like, oh, no, that's going to be us. I remember we, so they said some other things to us. We're just trying to hold it together. We got back in the car. We just sobbed like, sorry, kind of reliving it here as I'm telling it. But we just wept, I mean, for like 20 minutes. I didn't think you could weep that long, you know. But just as soon as we tried to hold it together, we just weep some more. I felt like our life was over. Our, it's like the world stopped. I've never fallen off a big cliff. But if you ever did, I think as you're falling, you're like, I can't believe this is happening, right? And that's what I felt like, like we'd just fallen off this cliff. And I'm like, I can't believe this is happening. It's like the world stopped. There's no hope. Why go on? I'd watch other people go on about their lives. I'm like, what are you doing? It's over. Life is over. But we prayed. But we prayed together. We prayed separately. I mean, as soon as we got home to our apartment, we prayed some together. And I said, I just got to go, you know, and... So we prayed and we cried out to God. We asked for his grace to be faithful. We just asked for faith through this whole thing. But I wanted out. I wanted out of this. I wanted to run away. I wanted it to be over and done. I did not want this to become a reality. My life. I remember I came home uh, a, a day or so after this, and Cheryl was in there talking to Ricky's mom. And I can remember my first reaction was like, no, that's not going to be us. You know, and just that she was there made it more reality, like this is going to be our lives. I want it out. I think that's the response of humanity. That was the response of Hagar, right? She wanted out. So she ran away. Get away from it. Israel wanted out. Think of the nation of Israel while they were in the wilderness. They wanted out. They wanted to go back to Egypt. David, King David wanted out. When he was running away from Saul, and people, Saul's trying to kill him, and he's in the wilderness. He, he wanted out. He cried out, God, deliver me from this. Even Jesus wanted out, right? Father, if there's any way, if there's any way to deliver me from this, he wanted out. But David and Jesus prayed. They embraced it. They, they embraced it. They didn't take matters into their own hands. They took it to God. Fortunately, Hagar listened to the angel and fortunately, Israel had Moses, right? But what if they had continued to run away and they just wanted out? If Hagar had, if she had not listened, if she had not embraced it and kept running, she probably would have died. She probably would have died or found herself in an even worse situation. If Israel wouldn't have followed Moses, they'd return to Egypt, right? Return to bondage. They'd miss out on God's provision in the desert. 
they'd miss out eventually of entering the promised land and being God's vehicle to reveal his glory to the, to the whole earth. What if David didn't embrace, didn't really take it to God? He probably would have murdered Saul, become a murderer. He'd miss out on all his intimacy that he had with God in the wilderness. You know, most of his psalms, if not all of them, were written in the wilderness, not in the palace. There were men out there where this intimacy with God was so vibrant and so real. And what about Jesus? Return to the Father, I guess, and we'd still be lost in our sin, if that's even possible. But the struggle we want to be rid of is often the struggle we need. I want it out. I was tempted in every way. I shared last week how I'm guilty of murder, of an abortion uh, with my girlfriend. I never thought that I would ever consider that again. But man, that temptation came back. That would deal with this, right? That would take care of it. It's legal. But fortunately, I kept praying and eventually was like, no, that's not an option. No, the freedom of no choice. God, this, this, your will be done here. If you want to take it away, you can, but I cannot step in. I got to let it, I got to entrust you with this. So about a week later, this was about a week before Thanksgiving. Um, so about a week later, we we're at my parents' house. And uh, total despair, the whole week, just huge cloud. I just, total despair, woke up about a week later full of hope. I mean, it was, it was God hope, and I knew it right from the start. You know, Romans 15, 13, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That overrules every circumstance and anything going on in anyone's life, anywhere, any place, any time. God does that. You have hope. And I can remember waking up just like, oh, my God goodness, I am so full of hope. I, I know this is you, God, but I'm also like a little troubled by this because that means it's going to happen, right? Like we're going to have this child. So even though I was full of this hope, it's, it's still, it, it made it happen, but I just couldn't shake the hope. Like before I couldn't shake the despair. Now I couldn't shake the hope. It was so powerful, so real. And Cheryl had got up early to serve my parents, you know, and all that stuff. Of course, I didn't wake up to like 10 or 11. Like usually when you go home, right, your parents, I get very lazy. I'm like 14 again. And uh, so I didn't really talk to her until about 2 or 3 or 4 that afternoon. And I shared with her, I woke up and with this, this insatiable hope, she, your eyes got really big. <laughs> Sorry. And she said, me too. And you know, before all the despair, the sobbing, weeping now, we're just rejoicing, rejoicing in God, meeting us in this trial, meeting us in this difficulty, the biggest challenge of our lives. That night on the news, um, uh, I don't believe this is a coincidence, but that night on the news, we're watching 11 o'clock news, my parents, and they had uh, this picture of this little three-year-old girl with spina bifida up for adoption. And it said, you can have her tomorrow, <laughs> you know, because who, who's going to adopt a kid with spina bifida? And I remember sitting there on the couch, and, and I just had this strong sense, this, this belief, like, God, I'd do that. I would be willing to adopt that child because he had come in and filled us with strength and with hope. 
when David was uh, a couple years old, he was two years old. We, it's, he's got a different thing now. He can do a lot of his restroom stuff. He needs a little bit of help, but kind of on his own more so. But when he was a baby, first three, four years of his life, um, I had to give him an enema, and uh, manual enema. And I'd wear gloves, and it would, you know, I, I don't have to go through the whole thing. But sometimes it'd take like three hours. And uh, during one of these longer times when things are going on that it's just like, you know, you don't want to, to happen, I am griping and complaining in my spirit, God, I can't believe this. This is taking so long. This is gross. I don't want to be doing this. I, I started thinking about all the other things I could be doing in life right now and just going on and on in my spirit, just complaining. And God spoke to me at that moment. And he said, will you not serve your brother? Is there any greater love than laying your life down for your brother? And I was just like, you're right, God. And right then, I was filled with joy. I was filled with more joy than I had ever experienced in my life, doing all the fun, great things that I like to do in life, sports, skiing, camping, climbing, whatever. I was filled with more joy in that moment than I had ever experienced in my life. And it continued for the whole time. I just went from despair to feeling sorry for myself, starting to become bitter towards this, to all of a sudden, I don't want to do anything else in life but this. Because if I'm doing it with God, and he is there with me, and he's filling me with his presence, that's all I need, right? The nearness of God is my good. The joy of the Lord can enter our lives no matter what circumstance we are going through. So God has refined my life, our lives, my wife, my, in so many ways. I remember the first, as I think back um, on it, those first five to eight years of his life, I felt like every day God was yanking more and more of the world out of me and replacing it with himself. It was daily. It was daily. I'd catch, I'd catch myself. It's like, wow, that's horrible, Lord. And he was just using it to refine my life over and over and over again. David has had 23 major, major surgeries, one for every year he's been alive. He's 23 now. It hasn't been an easy road for him or his parents or his siblings, for sure. It seems like just when we, uh, you know, life starts becoming a little comfortable and normal, boom, something else, another setback um, that we have to go through. But where I stand today, I can't imagine my life without this. I mean, it's horrible to say in some ways, because I'd love for my son, you know, to, to not have a disability. And uh, he always wanted to play football. He's never been able to, you know, play football. He realized that when he was a, a young kid. It was a very, like, difficult moving time for both of us. And uh, so I'd love for that. But at the same time, I think, our, I, don't, I can't imagine life without it and what God has done through it. It's been our greatest challenge, but it's also been our greatest blessing. I say that with all sincerity. I think we got a picture of them when they're uh, a little bit younger here with him and his sisters there. I think we were at the zoo right there. And so, and then another one, they're a little bit older here. I think that was his high school, getting loved on by his sisters, which he loves. So, you know. But he's a great kid, and God has blessed us beyond measure. Um, and uh, our, our greatest, 
Our greatest challenge has definitely become our greatest blessing. So difficulty, suffering, and pain, there are tutors that teach us, right? They teach us about God and the source of true life. Look at Deuteronomy 8. Be careful to obey all the commands I am giving you today. Then you will live and multiply, and you will enter and occupy the land the Lord swore to give to your ancestors. This is speaking to the Israelites in the desert that wanted to go back to Egypt. Remember how the Lord your God has led you through the wilderness for these 40 years, humbling you and testing you to prove your character and to find out whether or not you would obey his commands. Yes, he humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna, a food you had not known before. He did it. Why? To teach you that people do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Boy, we need to learn this. I, if you can learn this, you'll have an, you, 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 you will go from strength to strength. We don't live because everything is going our way, and we get to do everything we want, and we have all the money that we have in order to buy all the things that we want. We live, we live by being connected to God. That's how we experience true life, by being fed by his words that strengthen us, that give us hope, that give us joy, that give us contentment, that give us peace. This is how we truly live. But we have a tendency to look to many other things besides God for life and purpose, right? That's our tendency. We have many substitutes for God. I think of Jesus when he went and talked to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. What did he say? If you drink the water that I can give to you, you will never thirst again. But what do we do? We go to many other wells. We have lots of other wells besides Jesus that we go to. So that's the blessing in many ways of our afflictions and our difficulties, right? They force us back to the one well that we'll never be thirsty again, the more we tap into that. They lead us to obedience and experiencing God's presence, his comfort, his joy, his strength. They lead us to encountering God in new and profound and deep ways. They are used by him to grow us up and make us more like him. Can I say it one more time? The struggle we want to be rid of is the struggle we really need in life. Let's look at one last verse. James 1, the message, I, I just love the way he words this. Consider it a sheer gift, friends, when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. You know that under pressure, your faith life is forced into the open, and it shows its true colors. So don't try to get out of anything prematurely. Let it do its work so you become mature and well-developed, not deficient in any way. Isn't that awesome? So what's the takeaways today? What difficulty are you going through right now? Most likely everyone's here going through something, right? Are you running away or are you taking it to God? Ask God what he wants you to do in your life and to teach you through it. Remind yourself, El-Rahi, that he sees you in this difficulty. And he wants to draw alongside and show you things and help you. He's our shepherd. And then pray, God, use this to help me become more like you. Use this to grow me up. 
Use this to help me be more fruitful in my service to you. You pray those kind of prayers, that just opens the door for God. Sure, I will do that. And you will experience that connection with God that brings the things that this world can, can never give to us. Amen? All right, let's go ahead and, and pray. Lord, thank you uh, for the example of Hagar. Lord, thank you that we too can be so excited that you see us. Lord, you're aware of everything that we are going through. Thank you, Lord, that while we may not necessarily pray for trials and hardships because we don't have to, they will come. But once they do, Lord, help us to embrace them. Help us, Lord, to welcome them and allow you, God, to move in and through them. Thank you they bring us back to you in such a deeper way. Thank you, Lord, that they force us into you where we find true life and peace and contentment, where we then turn around and we're such a blessing to all those around us because we have found the one true source of strength and comfort and joy. And now we don't need all these other things, Lord. And people see that, and there is a difference there. Someone that has joy in the midst of pain and affliction and, and all those things. So, Lord, thank you that you meet us. Lord, in whatever we're going through in life, Lord, help us to be faithful to you and remain faithful to you no matter what comes our way. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.